0: Hello, welcome to the Midweek Bible Study for the Boonville Church of Christ. My name is Ken Forrest. I'm actually the regular minister here. Although if you've been tuning in over the last couple of weeks, you might be, be wondering. Uh, several of us have been under the weather of late and that of course has resulted in us having to go live stream or recording our classes and distributing them on YouTube and Facebook Appreciate everyone's patience in that, but we want to make sure that we have some continuity. So we're doing our very best to try and meet the needs of our congregation. If you're visiting from some other place, well, we're glad that you're a part of our study too and hope that you'll benefit. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've had a little bit of a break from the study that I had begun several weeks ago we've been trying to look at the scriptures and for our part to develop a servant mentality. The last time that we were together, we actually met here in this facility. I distributed a list of questions and well, really, I guess, descriptions. And you went through that list of descriptions and determined whether or not those descriptions described you. Many of you came to me and said, Hey, you know, Ken, I I had quite a few of those and you shared with me how you did. It's really not a test. It's it's a it's a mechanism for the purpose of reflecting on just where we are as servants of the Lord. So if you scored high on that, I'm very thankful and I hope that you will look at those areas maybe that you lack and do your very best to grow in those. If you didn't score too many, listen, it's, it's not all over. Uh, you still have an opportunity in your life to strive for better things and to do your very best to put other people first. The reason that we do that is, is not so that the Lord will reward us for our servant-mindedness. The reason that we do that is so that we might become the hands and the feet of Jesus you know, Jesus's desire was to seek and to save that which was lost. He did that from the standpoint of a servant. So our desire is to serve Jesus by reaching out to others and trying to save them as well. But that, that requires some introspection on our part. So I hope you did well with that, that little, I guess, test or survey that we did, but It is not an end-all mechanism. We don't look at that and say, well, I've got it. I checked off a bunch, so I'm done. Now, we we constantly need to be reminded of those things that are necessary for us to be the kind of servant that really has the right mentality that has determined I'm going to serve the Lord no matter what. I, I read recently... A sociological survey that was done back in 2017. There were a lot of questions and a lot of results from those questions that were compiled, but these handful of results caught my eye. It said that 40% of Americans still attend church services, in the sense that they feel like they're affiliated with some kind of religious group, 40%. It went on to say that 23% of Americans have absolutely no religious affiliation. 8%, it said, represents the amount of people who actually attend a service more than once in a week. And then 25%, it said, have no affiliation, no attendance, no interest whatsoever in religious matters. Now what followed was this question. Okay, you say that these things are true and, and clearly people aren't attending church services like they used to. So why is it that you don't? And there were two things that came up pretty prominent. One was the church is full of hypocrites. And the second was that Christianity is irrelevant. Now I want you to think, These people who are not attending church services think that those who do attend church services are a bunch of hypocrites. You aren't a hypocrite, are you? I mean, they didn't get that idea from associating with you. And then that other thing, that Christianity is irrelevant. How did they come up with that idea? First of all, you don't think that it's irrelevant, do you? And even if you don't think it's irrelevant, here's what I'm really wondering. Are you living your life as though Christianity is irrelevant? And what I mean by that is, if I ask you, you're a Christian, you may say yes. If I ask you if the teachings of Jesus are important, you may say yes too, but... If I ask, are you really implementing what Jesus taught you? Are you, are you living your Christian life? Because what I'm gathering from the survey is that people are looking at those who say they are Christians and they're concluding, wait a minute, they say that they're Christians, but they're not living like Christians. You and I are living in a tough time. And not just because of the pandemic, not just because of the conveniences that are now out of our reach in a lot of areas. Not talking about that. I'm talking about the influx of worldly thinking that is getting to the point where it is affecting Christians, people who would never have seen themselves living in a worldly manner before, now increasingly look and realize, wait a minute, somehow or other, I have slipped into a condition I thought I never would be in. For the Christian, one of the main things to keep in mind is that either we are going to overcome or we are going to be overcome. Either we're going to have success in this world in fighting for Jesus or we're going to become a victim. There's a statement in the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 21 that says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, those are action ideas. First of all, I've got to resist what's happening around me. And I've got to refuse to be influenced by that. I'm either going to influence or be influenced. Don't be the one influenced. But then, secondly, I've got to be proactive according to this text. Not just that I'm resisting what's happening, but that I've got to overcome it. That's a positive action on my part, that's offensive action. I've got to use the good that I've been influenced by through my participation in Bible study and following the steps of those who have gone before me and their faithfulness. I've got to implement those things into my life such that I don't become the victim at all. I become the influencer of good in this world. Over the course of the next several lessons We're going to be examining a text of Scripture that was penned by the Apostle Paul that sets some standards by which you and I are to live. And some of those those ideals of our Christian walk that bear upon the idea of servanthood, of truly implementing God's plan in our life and truly reflecting in us the image of Jesus. That text is Romans chapter 12. Tonight, we're going to be talking about what it is to be a living sacrifice. So we'll just be looking at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. I encourage you to open your Bible to that passage. We'll be looking at that along with some other ideas from scriptures that we will pick up along the way. Before we start that, Let's pray together that God will help us, especially uh, whether we become that or not tonight, but that we will set our minds to become living sacrifices. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessing, the opportunity it is to have the time during the day to stop and to reflect and meditate upon your word. I pray, Lord, that our study will be a benefit to all of us. Help us to develop this servant mentality. Help us tonight to understand as much as we can what it is to be a living sacrifice. And then as living sacrifices, Lord, help us to be the right kind of example before others so that we will influence and not be influenced. Help me to communicate it, Lord, and be with our hearers that they can receive it and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the first thing that I want to do with you, I want to look at this text and break it down piece by piece. I want you to see just how beautiful and broad it is. And then when we finish that, we're going to look at some points together and kind of implementing some of those things that we find in the text. Now, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I said I wanted to break that down, and, and here's how I'm going to do that. I just want to look at just piece by piece, and then we'll draw some lessons out of that. He said, I'm beseeching you. Now, to beseech somebody means, look, I, I, I'm down on my knees, and I, I'm begging you. Now, what's interesting about that is the apostle Paul had such a reputation at the time that he wrote the book of Romans and really a desire to go and see them that he really, he really carried a lot of weight. You know, As an apostle of Jesus Christ and one who was willing to go places you know, to risk his own life, no doubt folks knew about the struggles that he had. Paul does not say, I beg you, I'm imploring you, brethren, on the status of my apostleship does not do that he goes higher he shows that this is more than just what is my desire for you he said i beseech you or i beg you therefore brethren listen to this now by the mercies of god if you look up that word mercies literally and and i don't know if this makes any difference to you but it just I don't know, it just, to me, it kind of intensifies the idea. The expression is literally the tender mercies. So this is the heart of God, Paul says, that's being laid out here. Look, I'm not begging you on the basis of my authority. I am begging you on the basis of, of the heart of God and that aspect of the heart of God that says this, you need to be punished for your sin and I could squash you if I wanted to. But here's the thing, my heart yearns for you, I long for you, and so I am not going to give you what you deserve. Now stop right there. I don't know, I don't know how the mercy of God affects you, but every time I think about the mercy of God, I am thankful. I am thankful that God doesn't give me what I deserve. Now, years ago, I heard this passage and it has stuck with me ever since. In fact, I think it's been made into a song that we sometimes sing, but it's found in an obscure passage of Scripture, but it is so powerful. It's Lamentations chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Listen now. His mercies... Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. Now what I love about this text is that it reminds me that the mercy of God is never used up. As much as we may be guilty of sin and begging God to forgive us, and if we benefit from the forgiveness of of sin and God God separates us from that condemnation and we receive His mercy. It is not like it's a one-time deal. He says that God's mercy is fresh, it is new every single morning. I don't know what your life is like, how how you keep your day, how early you get up, or when you go to bed, but I'll tell you I, I generally get up pretty early. And when I'm out, more often than not, I experience the rising of the sun. Ever since I read this text, something comes over me when I I realize what's happening around me. The sun's coming up because it reminds me of this promise of God. His mercies are new every single morning. God loves us that much. Now, put all of that that you just found out or you've, you've thought about in your mind and put it on this text. Paul says, I'm begging you, brethren, by the mercies, by the tender mercies of God that are fresh and new every morning, that you present your bodies, you what you are, yourself and all that you have, as a living, not a dead but a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. He says that is your reasonable service. That is what ought to be expected of you. And then he says, do not, so this is on the other side of it, here's what I want you to do, be a living sacrifice, keeping in mind what God does for you continually every single day, and it's never extinguished. You do that, but then on the other side, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be made with the form of this world, but be transformed, go through a metamorphosis so that you may prove. And the word prove there literally carries the idea of offering the evidence or more to our case, to be the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, no matter what you have been in the past, Paul says, I'm begging you now, not on the basis of my own authority or strength, but on the basis of your knowledge that God is a merciful God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. You be sure you're not conformed to this world, but you be transformed. Here's how you do it, through the renewing of your mind so that you can prove or become the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what I want us to understand as we break that idea down into what influence this text can have on me is that a living sacrifice is very different from a dead sacrifice. I make that contrast because that really sticks out to me in the text. I don't know if it was the first time I ever read this text that it dawned on me, but certainly after reading the text a few times and taking in what Paul is calling for us to do and to be in the ensuing verses, listen, he says, I'm begging you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. At some point, I thought to myself, wait a second. Usually when I think of sacrifice, I think of something that's dead, right? We've all studied those Old Testament passages about the various sacrifices that were offered, and it always ended up, If it was an animal, with the animal dying, it would be bled out. Because the forgiveness was being seen in the shedding of that blood. Now that was foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus, understand. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So in order for there to be a sacrifice, something had to die. Now I'm reading in our text that, wait a minute, I want you to be a sacrifice, but I don't want you to die. I want you to live as a sacrifice. Oh, I'll be honest with you. It would probably be easier for us if our Christianity, if our servanthood actually was boiled down to one big event. You know, maybe you just, you prepared your your, your whole life for the event. You didn't have to really buckle down until it happened. And you know, there are some religions like that where during your lifetime, you have to go visit a particular shrine Or sometime during your life, you're supposed to take a trek to the top of a mountain, something like that. I imagine that Christianity would be a lot easier if all I had to do was some act during my life. Now, I get the idea that some people have already concluded that. They think, wait a second, Ken, you remember that? day when I obeyed the gospel. That was, that was the event. You know, that was my sacrifice. When I died, and in a sense, there is a sacrifice taking place there, but it's not a one-time event. Because when I die to myself and I'm buried in that water, yeah, I died, but I rise to newness of life. Now I am a living, vibrant, animated person Probably still have the same relationships. Maybe still have the same job, same circle of acquaintances, friends. But I'm a different person now. I put to death the old man and I became something new. Listen to this text now. I'm begging you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies, ten of mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, the right thing for you to do. This is what you ought to do in response to the giving up of yourself and the rising up of this new creature. Now, as regards this new creature that I am, I didn't literally physically die, but I did put to death the old man. When I rose up as a new creature, some... Some things happened here. One is that I've changed. Galatians chapter two verse twenty: I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now I'm seeing two things happen here. One, Jesus died; He sacrificed Himself. For the forgiveness of my sins so that I could sacrifice myself and live for him. But watch this. Jesus died to take my sins away. I did not not sacrifice myself, become a living sacrifice in order to pay for my sin. The idea here is that I have sacrificed myself, my will, in order to give myself to the Lord. I am changing leadership in my life. I have become what I was for a long time, the captain of my own life. I make my own decisions. I do what I want in order to become this thing that we have been striving to be all along. And that is to be a servant. Servant first and foremost to our Lord and Master. And then As he was for others, so we become. Mark 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Listen, I'm just telling you, a living sacrifice, what you are to be, living for Jesus now, committed to serving God, is very different from a dead sacrifice. They took those carcasses and they burned them. It was over with. It is not a one-time moment for all of us. It is a continuing, and I hope flourishing and growing experience in service. And then second, a living sacrifice is different from a worldly sacrifice. When people in the world sacrifice, what they're really saying is, I'm I'm kind of buying up. You know, I'm going to let go of one thing so that I can get a greater thing. They call that a sacrifice. That's not what is happening with us. And notice, <laughs> notice kind of the second phase of all that's happening here in this text. So, I'm going to be this living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. That's my reasonable service. But he says, do not contrast, do not be conformed to this world. Now, just look at the English word. Conform is, it's, it's a word that's made by two other words. It's a compound word. So here are our parts con and form. The word con generally means with. And then we have our base word, form. So the idea is literally to be made with a form. You may know exactly what that means by your own experiences. For instance, if you're a a baker, you know you, you mix up your batter for a cake, then you have to pour it into some sort of form. What you don't do is just open up the oven and dump it in there and hope for the best. You don't do that. Because that liquid would spread out all over the base the base of your oven, make a mess. No, what we do is well kind of like what my grandmother used to do. I remember she made a lot of pound cakes, things like that. And she had these these pans that were shaped, some of them had little scallop shapes or, or re- other rectangular fun shapes, stars and things like that. She would take that batter, she would pour it into the bowl, which was basically a form. The reason it's a form is because when you cooked it, that temperature evaporates the water, the liquid out of your mixture and you're left with the bread, with the cake. But that bread or that cake will take the shape of the form that it's poured into. So if she poured it into the pan with the scallop edges on it, that's the shape the cake would take. If it was round, it'd become round. If it was diamond-shaped, it'd become diamond-shaped. The batter was poured into a form that cake was made with a form. It conformed to the shape of the pan. That happens also on building sites. When they get ready to pour concrete, they don't just come out there with concrete truck and just dump a bunch of concrete everywhere and hope for the best and make a mess. What they do is they put up form boards or they dig a ditch For the foundation, which creates a form, then they pour the concrete into the form. Many years ago, my dad decided we were going to build a pad for a carport. Well, it was going to be above the level of the ground, so we had to create a form. We took some old oak boards that we had found in the barn out back and we created a rectangular shape. We sealed it up as best we could. And then the concrete truck came. It poured the concrete in there. It set up for a specified amount of time. And well, there we had it, a solid foundation for the carport. Dad said, well, let's, let's remove these boards here, the form that we had created. Listen, when we removed those boards, those old oak boards, the pattern that was in that wood plank actually had pressed itself into that concrete. Now you say, Ken, how is that? Because that concrete's really hard. How did it get the image of the board in the concrete? Well, that's because the concrete had been poured into the form or the mold And it took the shape, even of those intricate little patterns on the wooden board. You see, you are going to take the shape of whatever it is that you're poured into. This text says, do not be conformed. Don't be made with the form of the world. Why is that, Paul? Because if you're poured into the form of the world, then you'll take the image of the world. Or another way, you might say, is that a Christian poured into the form of the world is a deformed Christian. So do not be conformed. Don't be made with the form of this world. But, he says, rather... Be transformed. Now that word transformed right there comes from the Greek word metamorphos, or to go through a metamorphosis. Something goes through a metamorphosis when it goes from one state into an entirely different state. There's a popular series of movies around the idea of the transformers, and typically what they are is you have these uh, machines that look like automobiles or, or, or aircraft or even, even ships, and then they can transform into these humanoid robots. That's a transformation. But, you know, long before the transformers came along, there was a, there was a great example of metamorphosis in nature. When I was a little kid, I, I loved to play with those little caterpillars, little fat ones with the long hair on them and those big beefy legs. I loved to play with those things. As I've gotten older, uh, not so much. But I remember those things just seemed to be everywhere for a while. But then they just, I don't know, mysteriously disappeared. Until either I got older in science class or... I experienced it myself, I know that that caterpillar eventually, when it fills up as much as it can with leaves and and other debris, it will climb a tree, and usually a very specific tree, but it'll climb that tree, go out on a limb and hang out on a little twig on that limb, and that caterpillar will spin for itself a cocoon completely encased in this, what looks like a sleeping bag. And then, over a specified amount of time, that caterpillar will emerge from that cocoon as an entirely different creature altogether. It's no longer fat, plump, with stubby legs. And long fur. Now it is a skinny, brittle looking butterfly. Caterpillar is one of the ugliest things in nature. The butterfly is one of the most beautiful. Now what I like about that transformation is how much it reflects the transformation that's supposed to take place with us. We're ugly in sin. But when we go through the metamorphosis of obedience to the gospel, the forgiveness of sin, we come out on the other side, as it were, a beautiful butterfly. Paul says, going to be that living sacrifice, going to be that servant for the Lord that's totally dedicated to him, you got to understand there's a difference between being a living sacrifice and being a worldly sacrifice. You don't conform to this world. You don't become made with the world. You don't become a deformed Christian. But you be transformed, and here's how you do it. By the renewing of your mind. Don't think that I can just be a lazy Christian. You know, I came up out of that water, and hey, I'm saved. I'm good. You know, that's not the end of the process. That That's really the beginning of the process. In the book of 1 uh, Peter, Peter reminds us of the challenge that it is to take on an inheritance. But in 2 Peter, he puts legs on that. Now that I have that inheritance, what, I, what do I do? 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, he says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, godliness brotherly kindness, brother kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to spend all our time on this text, but notice some very important elements. Number one, we start with faith, but that's not where we end. We continue to add to our faith, and we're very diligent in doing so. And then once we pursue that, let's be sure that we continue to set our minds on that. Because if we're not adding those things to our faith, he says, it is like you have forgotten. And I can't imagine that anybody would ever forget the sacrifice of Jesus and how important that was. And going back to Paul's plea in the original, remembering the absolute tender mercies of God. God forbid we should ever get to the place where we stop growing. So we're not going to be conformed with this world but we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and then finally a living sacrifice is different from an unproven sacrifice he says we do all of this so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God why are we going to be a living sacrifice why am I not going to be conformed to this world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind? Why am I going to do that? Why am I committed to that? Why is that a daily thing with me? It's because my whole purpose now is to prove. now that word "prove" comes, actually comes from the legal world. It means to give the evidence. I heard someone say, and "Wow. I think it's a challenging question. It was, if they were gathering up Christians uh, in order to punish them for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to make a conviction with you? Can you prove by the life that you're living what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? That, That goes back to that survey that we saw in the beginning, doesn't it? Here are these people out there in the world who have given up on Christianity, and they say two things. Number one, all those Christians, they're hypocrites. And then number two, well, they're not living like they're preaching. (laughs) You know, their life, their Christianity is irrelevant. I don't see that it makes a difference. You can make the difference in the choices that you're making as a living sacrifice. You can prove Become the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You are showing, servant of God, you are showing to everybody in your circle of influence what it really is to be a child of God. Think about these challenging ideas. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I wonder if you can say this, I hope you can. Hey, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now self-reflection, could you say that to somebody? Could you say, look, just, just do what I do. Do what I do. When Paul was talking to Timothy, basically his protege, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says, don't let anybody despise your youth, but you be an example to the believers. In word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, purity. When you examine those little words there, they're not just, you know, a, a list that, that's pleasing and rolls off the tongue. Paul's speaking by inspiration, so every one of those words means something. Paul said, you be the example of that. Don't you think if it was good enough for Timothy, that'd be good enough for me? Good enough for you. What kind of example will I be that I may prove what's that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? How can I show to other people, give the evidence? How can I do that so that they know what God wants? Well, by being an example in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, purity, In order for us to develop a spirit of servanthood, to develop a servant mentality, we got to start with these challenging words right here. I beseech you, I, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies, the tender mercies of God, that you present your bodies all that you are and all that you have, a living, not a dead one, but a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. is what you ought to do. And do not be conformed. Don't be made with the form of the world, but be transformed. Go through the metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or become the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, in this world today, either you will overcome or you will be overcome. Either you will influence or you will be influenced. We're striving to be servants of God We're striving to be, according to our text, living sacrifices. It's my prayer that we'll all be able to take that step to move in that right direction. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity and blessing to study your word. And I pray that as we've examined these things that we've been able to maybe bring back to life some things we've known all along. Lord, help us be committed in our relationship to you, truly to be living sacrifices. And help us, Lord, not only as that is a personal benefit, but by living that way, to be an example to those around us of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of yours. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the mercy that is new every morning. And thank you for the challenge that's before us, the one that we are accepting as your body here in Boonville. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.